Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1230, air date June 5th, 2023. Namaskar, Sastriya Kaal, Vanakam, Kambhagani, Ram Ram Today we have Dr. Shiva uh, Ayudurai from MIT PhD, who is a MIT PhD holder and... Um, I'm a little feeling nervous because today we are talking to inventor of email. There's been a lot of controversies around him. And actually, I got him for the purpose uh, with a larger agenda that why is it that the Indians invent so many things, yet the things are stolen from us. If there is a blue-eyed guy with white skin and he comes and says, oh, I invented this, we Indians have a habit of accepting, accepting it the moment he speaks it out. But when one of our own says it, we rather uh, counter it. We do not accept it. We do not believe it easily. And something of that sort has happened even with Dr. Shiva. So let's hear his story out. Sir, a very warm welcome on the show. Great to be here, Gayatri. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? All right. Before we go on, I want to invite each of you to come to our next open house for Truth, Freedom, Health. I personally host the open house every Thursday at 11 a.m. EST and then again at 8 p.m. EST. You'll learn about Truth, Freedom, Health, which is a movement, a platform, as well as a community and much more. And we are dedicated to raising your consciousness through education, theory, and action practice. You'll learn how to think beyond left and right, pro and anti, so you may start to see things as they truly are and become a force for real and lasting change in your community. Again, to join us, simply RSVP at vashiva.com slash orientation. You'll meet lots of great people from across the world. Again, it's every Thursday at 11 a.m. EST and again at 8 p.m. EST. Simply RSVP at vashiva.com slash orientation. Be the light. Now let's go back to our program. Let's begin, you know, with my journey. Look, the invention of email, um, it's such a powerful story because it's ultimately not about me. It's actually about you and everyone listening because, and it's not even, a, it is a, a very, very multi-layered issue. It's, an, it's, it's actually a, a wonderful issue to discuss that everyone should be discussing in their homes. So the real question I wanna put forward to is, and you alluded to this, why is there even any controversy? And furthermore, the question is, um, another friend of mine who's a, uh, who, who's an MD, PhD at a Harvard Medical School, he says, if someone has an immediate negative reaction when they see that picture of that 14-year-old kid, you know, inventing email, if they have a visceral reaction, that is actually white supremacy. And there are a lot of Indians who are white supremacists. Brown-skinned Indians, in some ways, are the worst white supremacists than what you would call white people. And we should also discuss that, guy three. This immediate reaction, and we should discuss that too. The issue is I invented email, first of all, as a 14 year old boy, number one. Number two, I did it in the body of a brown skinned human being. Number two, strike. Number three, I did it before I came to MIT. It wasn't done at Harvard or MIT. Number four, the invention of email took place in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey, which is one of the most poorest cities in the entire United States. So you see, there are four things against me because, or four, not against me, but against um, this brainwashing of where people think innovation comes from. People are taught to believe that innovation comes from somebody who has glasses, 
who has a beard and it looks all screwy and nerdly and it doesn't dress properly, who's typically white, okay, who's uh, uh, did it at MIT or Harvard or Silicon Valley, they could have gone to MIT and Harvard and dropped out. That's actually cool, like Zuckerberg or Gates. And it typically took place um, in this elite institutions, okay? That's the typical narrative. The invention of email blows up all of those narratives. Now, the problem they have, Guy 3, is if you look at 1981 is when I went to MIT. I got four degrees from MIT, won every major award at MIT, have a PhD from there, won a Fulbright Award, and throughout my tenure at MIT, I was on the front page of the newspaper for inventing many other things. You see? But if you go before 1981, I invented things before. And I wrote, in fact, I wrote a, a mathematics paper called Iodorace Four-Point Theorem when I was also 16 years, 17 years old, which was published in a math journal. I did research in medicine as a 14-year-old boy on our babies dying in their sleep. You see? Now, if I were white, I'd be called a Mozart or a genius or a Beethoven, right? That there is white supremacy. But the real people who perpetrate white supremacy are not white people. It's actually brown-skinned Indians in this case. And we should talk about that. Okay? So let me share the facts. Okay? Now, first of all, let's talk about my journey. I grew up in India. I was born in Bombay, you know, 1963, December 2nd, 1963. I grew up in India, which had a caste system, which many people do not want to talk about or acknowledge. Uh, my caste, we were supposed to be coconut pickers. My mother uh, was an extraordinary woman. She grew up in a household where their father ran away and married the maid, and she was left homeless as an eight-year-old kid. So the thought of her ever even getting, my mother ended up getting two degrees in mathematics at a time when women were just supposed to be home being housewives. So my mom was quite extraordinary. She realized as a kid that she couldn't trust men, as she told me, that she was going to stand up on her own two feet. So my mom not only got a BS in mathematics, but also a master's in statistics, which is still quite extraordinary. My father grew up in Burma with bombs dropping everywhere. He didn't read his first book until he was 10 or 11 years old under a mango tree. And he ended up becoming a chemical engineer, serving Gopala Saganya, you know? And so these were two extraordinary people. So the chance of my parents ever getting educated was extraordinary. The chance of them coming to the United States was one in a trillion. So I have that background. So I have a very different journey, which is very hard for people to appreciate because I remember as a child, going to a friend of mine's home and I was told to stand out, called the name Shudra and told to stand outside and given water in a different cup. I was four years old. And that's when I realized, what is this thing? Why was, it deeply hurt me even to this day. And that's when I started studying politics as a kid. I started reading every revolutionary writer. I, I didn't, it really hurt me. And I understood this in, inequality that existed. But I also grew up in, in a small village in South India, three months out of the year. My grandmother was a traditional uh, Siddha healer. She didn't have any degrees. She had tattoos all over her arm. She was the woman in the village, in this village around 10,000 people where on every weekend, 3,000, uh, sorry, 30 people would line up. She would observe their face using an ancient Indian technique called Samudrika Lakshanam, which is face analysis. She would figure out what was going on in their bodies. And then she would figure out what medicines to give them. 
not only medicine, sometimes massage, sometimes a mantra, right? And I saw her heal people. So I grew up in these world where I was very interested in politics, but I also saw this woman with no degrees heal people. So I was deeply interested in medicine as well as politics. And if you look today, I'm running for US president as an independent candidate, have been an activist all my life, and I'm still a working scientist and an inventor, okay, uh, in medicine. So my life, you know, went both those paths. But let's talk about the, the invention of email. First of all, any person writing this, or hearing this should write it down. There is no controversy that I invented email. I'll say it again. There's no controversy. The facts are actually black and white. And if you have a visceral reaction to seeing this face, me telling you that I invented email, like, oh no, I would challenge that you are actually a white supremacist. If you had this immediate negative reaction to hearing that. And it's really about you. It says nothing to do with me. It's really about you. So let's look at the facts. I, as a child, was very motivated when I came to the United States. I left India on December 2nd, 1970, literally on my seventh birthday. We landed in India on December 5th, 1970. I'd never seen snow. I was actually wearing shorts. I saw snow. Um, we, um, my dad came to India with $75 in his pocket, all right? Um, and we first settled in a town called Patterson, New Jersey, one of the poorest cities in the United States, predominantly African-Americans. And then my parents, whatever money they made, they would move to the better public school systems. I mean, I never went to private school, anything like that. But by the time I was 13, I had finished all the mathematics courses my high school had to offer. In fact, I finished calculus by the uh, ninth grade, okay? Which I was going to actually the high school four grades above me. And so, I, and, but I wasn't just a nerd. If you saw me, I, I, I was a center halfback for our soccer team. I could throw a, a fast pitch, you know, people said I could have gone into the majors to play baseball. So I was an athlete, a very good athlete, and pretty sharp at mathematics. So it was hard for people to figure this out because people are typically thought you have to look like a nerd, look all screwed up, you can't be an athlete and you can't, uh, you know, and you can't uh, be also smart, right? This is, a, again, this is a, one form of discrimination that people have. You have to look like this, feel like this, and you're this, so I experienced that. Now, when I was 14, um, there was a small newspaper ad that came out in the local newspaper in New York, right? a friend of mine, and um, this is 1977-78, and this article said that a professor at New York University, which is one of the biggest universities in the world, was going to select 40 students to come to New York University in a intensive summer program where they would teach six computer languages, did, and a, actually a, four, a seventh course in, in electrical engineering and digital circuitry, and because this professor had gotten a grant, because he knew that the future is gonna be software engineers. The term software engineer didn't even exist then. And so I applied, even though I was one age below the application cutoff. Anyway, I was fortunate to get accepted, the only Indian kid who got accepted to this program. And my parents lived in New Jersey and you had to get to New York. That was a train ride. I'd have to get up at five in the morning my mother would drop me off at the train station. I would go into New York by myself. Most parents are afraid to send their kids anywhere. And in those days, New York had crime everywhere. As you're walking through New York, people would try to sell you drugs. There were robberies. 
So that's what I, so in uh, 1978, I was uh, a student accepted to this elite program and I graduated top of the class. And, um, and I learned these seven different, uh, six different programming lang languages and what you would call digital theory, okay? After I finished that, I still had some high school courses to do. So I just want to give you the context here. I wasn't a slouch. Some people would consider me a genius or a prodigy, okay? But it wasn't like I was just some random person. I worked hard though, okay? I was a very, very hard worker. I'd get up at, I'd, uh, get up at seven in the morning and I'd go to bed at 2 a.m. because I also played sports, okay? So I only needed five hours of sleep and I still only need five. But anyway, um, in New Jersey, I was, I, we lived in Livingston, New Jersey. Um, in New Jersey, I was fortunate through my high school teachers and my parents to find a physicist. His name was Dr. Les Michelson. And he had a small computer science lab at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. And if someone wants to type in Newark, N-E-W-A-R-K, Newark, New Jersey is again, one of the poorest cities in the United States. 95% of people are African-Americans. Most white people still today are afraid to go into Newark because they'll get mugged or something, okay? So, but in that Newark was a small medical college and Dr. Michelson, who was a physicist, had set up a computer science lab. And because computers were just coming and in this medical school, people wanted to use computers to do data analysis of people's data, right? Scientific data processing. So Dr. Michelson knew I, 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 I graduated from this program and he gave me a job there, a job, a full-time job as a research fellow. So as a 14 year old kid, I get a job as a research fellow in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey. Now I had to leave high school to go do that job. So there was a high school teacher who fought with the administration of the school saying, this guy is brilliant. We need to, he, he, he doesn't have any more math courses here. We need to do an independent study. So she changed the rules and she fought. So she was a revolutionary and got me so I could take, um, go down 30 miles into that medical college. Okay. So that was itself was pretty cool. And my parents were very supportive. Okay, most parents would say, oh, why are you leaving school? You still have courses, but my parents were cool. So the first project I was given, Gayatri, was there's a very interesting thing in medicine where, where babies die in their sleep. Um, it's known as sudden infant death syndrome. People really didn't understand why. And Rutgers Medical School at that time had the best 48-hour sleep data where, where they had data watching baby sleep patterns. Babies actually have six sleep patterns. and um, Based on those patterns, uh, when a baby suddenly dies before that, they stop breathing. It's called an apnea. So I had the sleep data patterns and when the baby had an apnea. So I did what you would today call AI, but it was basically um, algorithms. And I was able to predict under certain conditions when the baby would suddenly stop breathing. And in fact, I wrote a paper on it, which I presented at the number one biomedical conference in the world in Finland, okay? So I was doing that research and people knew I could program, I was smart. Dr. Michelson then gave me a different project. In those days, if you really look, if you can visualize in those days, by the way, the computers were not, you know, these devices like this big, okay? A computer would probably fill up my entire home here. 
It was called mainframe computers. Now on those mainframe computers, who used those mainframe computers? It was old white men with white lab coats with a little pocket sticker. They looked a certain way. And you had to know very, very complex computer commands to even use these computers, okay, in this medical college. And what you also need to understand in those big computers, people could send little text messages, but you again had to know simple commands from one, one big mainframe to another. All right. All right. That's called simple text messaging you could do. All right. Keep that in mind. But no one, it wasn't, it, you had to know very complex commands. Dr. Michelson asked me if I would like to take on a big challenge. And no one had ever done this before. Now, in that organization, and like if you looked at any of these medical colleges, if you went to the office of the Prime Minister of India or the office of the President of the United States, or you went to a large university, how did these organizations communicate internally? How did they do it? Do you remember, Gayathri? I don't know if you remember. In no. 1970, the way they communicated, they had two systems of communication. They had the old-fashioned telephone, okay? The one dialing like this. Yeah, so that's what they would have. You'd have to dial. In those, mm -hmm. they didn't even have the punch key yet. And so if in this medical college, there were about a thousand little offices, Every office had a doctor or researcher, and in that office was also a secretary, okay? A secretary was always a woman, always a woman. In those days, in 1960s, 70s, a woman basically only had four jobs she could do. She could be a mother, she could be a nurse, she could be a teacher, or she could be a secretary. So in every office, there was a secretary who on her desktop, physical desktop made of metal or wood, to anyone under the age of 50, you need to understand there was something called a desktop, which is a physical desk. On that desktop, she had various things. She had a typewriter. Okay, we'll come back to that. She had a box called an inbox. It was a physical box. She had an out box. She had something called a drafts box. There were typically three boxes on most secretaries' desktops. Behind her were lots of big file folders, metal file folders. You could file things. Underneath the desk was a garbage can, trash can. Also on top of the desk, next to the typewriter, she had paper, white paper, you know? It was bond white paper, right? Like this. And, and um, she also had a little bucket of paper clips. All right, and then she had envelopes. So this was a typical practice. If one office wanted to communicate with another office or many multiple offices, the boss, the doctor, the researcher would walk up over to the secretary and dictate a letter. He would say, okay, Gayathri, take a letter. And she would start typing away. He would say to Dr. Smith from, let's say, Dr. Davy, Gayathri Davy. And he would say subject would be hiring of Dr. Shiva. They're going to hire someone, right? And he would say, dear Dr. Smith, I have the resume of Dr. Shiva. I would like to hire him. Uh, he's a good candidate. I've attached his resume, attached. So there'd be an attachment and they would put a paper clip. Okay, we'll get to that. It was an attachment. And, and then you as uh, guy three Davy may say, I'm also informing the head of human resources as well as my boss, my boss's boss. And that would be a CC, carbon copy. Okay, thank you very much. Please let me know what you think. Now, what the secretary would do, she would have to take this paper put it in the typewriter and she start typing away. 
this memo to, from, subject, and she would put CC to two people. Now, when she did CC, she would have to take this paper, put a, a carbon paper, and put another white paper and type the CC for that person and for the other person. She'd have to retype twice. You follow? Okay. And then once she finished this memo, she would put it in the, in the drafts folder on her box. The boss would come over, read it, and he'd make some changes with her pen. And then she would then retype it. And then boss would read it. He says, okay, now the interesting thing would happen. She would take that document, get an envelope, put it in the envelope, tie it up. And remember the other two CC, she'd also have to do two more envelopes for that. All right. And then she would take these three envelopes and put it in the outbox. Okay. Then the mail guy would come in from a, who was traveling around all the offices. He'd pick up that mail. Sometimes they had these pneumatic tubes, you see, and that connected the offices. These documents were put there and it would get sent. Sometimes you would also put a little note in there saying you wanted a registered mail, meaning when the person got it, return receipt, they would sign for it. So you got it. So anyway, this was a very complex system. You follow? Inbox, outbox, folders, attachments, paper clips, CC, BCC. I was asked to convert this. The key word here is system, system, system. This entire, it was called the inter office mail system. If you talk to anyone over the age of 50, they will tell you about this inner office mail system. Okay, is that clear? So I was asked to convert this entire system of nearly hundreds of different features into the electronic version. And the customers of this would be the secretaries. Because remember the secretaries were using typewriters. Secretaries did not know computer coding. They'd never touched a computer. The thought of a woman going from the typewriter to the keyboard was unimaginable. It was thought, in fact, impossible. In fact, we found a document saying the people at the time who were the big researchers in electronic messaging thought this was impossible. If you want, I can show you that, okay? So these are the facts, all right? So up until the December 1977, there was in fact a document published by the expert in the world at the time in electronic messaging, he thought the idea of creating a system like this for everyday people to use was impossible, okay? So these are the facts. You can go to inventoremail.com. You can find all these documents or who invented email.com, all right? So I, however, didn't think it was impossible. I was a 14-year kid, okay? I didn't think this was impossible because when you're young, you don't think anything's impossible. You don't know enough. Sometimes it's good. And moreover, I respected these secretaries, these women. I mean, they were a lot older than me and I wanted to help them. So I went around as a kid and I made a list of all the features they wanted. They said, we have to have the inbox. We have to have the outbox. We have to have carbon copy. We have to be able to type easily. We have to be able to print sometimes. It was a hundred different features. If people go to inventor of email, I documented all of them. All right. Then I set about to write code to do that. I used to stay awake until two in the morning. I wrote 50,000 lines of software code in a programming language that wasn't intended for text. It was intended for scientific programming. So I had to write all these crazy memory handlers and I only had 8,000 
bytes of memory, 8,000 kilobytes, not gigabytes, not megabytes, kilobytes. So I had to write all this code in that, make it usable for the secretaries. I remember a doctor, old surgeon coming to me and saying, why are you doing this? He goes, this is a stupid idea. He goes, I simply go to my secretary and I dictate to her and a letter comes out. All right. So anyway, I wrote 50,000 lines of code capturing all of these features, every feature. And no one had ever done this before. First time a human being had done it, a 14-year-old kid for that matter. And I worked my butt off to do that. Now, I named that system, which no one had ever created. First thing I created it. All the facts are there. I have all the code. It's in the Smithsonian. There's no controversy. I wrote the code. It's there. Then I had to name the system. I named the system email, E-M-A-I-L, in all capital letters. Why? Because the programming language only allowed capital letters, Fortran. And second, it, the operating system only allowed you to use five characters. It was not an obvious term. It may say, oh, yeah, email is obvious, electronic mail. No, it was not an obvious term. When I first saw the word, I said, oh, do I say e-mall? It was a weird word. So I for, first, so second first I did, not only did I create this entire system, but I also named it email, created the term as a 14-year-old kid. All right. Was this system used? Of course. Hunt all the people logged in. They used it. I also wrote the user's manual, which is also in the Smithsonian. I wrote the manual. It was about a 100-page manual, how to use it, user's guide, technical operations guide. And then I did multiple seminars. Dr. Michelson has a very nice video. He said, you know, there was a big seminar he organized. And, and he goes, the person who did the seminar was not an eminent scientist. It was a 14-year-old kid. I had to do the training. I wrote the code. I wrote the manual. It was a one-man software company within the, within the university, okay? I won the Westinghouse Science Award which is today called the, at that time it was called the Baby Nobel Prizes. Three, I, 300 students all over the country would be selected. It's That too is documented. And then the local newspaper wrote a piece saying this kid invented this electronic mail. And it has a picture of me, my boss, uh, Dr. Michelson, my two school teachers. So this entire invention of email was not done at MIT. It was not done by the military. It was not done by a nerd who looked all screwed up. It was done by an athletic 14-year, 15, 16-year-old. By that time, I created various versions in Newark, New Jersey, where white people are afraid to go into, in a small medical college. And it was done by three factors. Teachers who loved me and supported me, my loving family, and a mentor who provided me infrastructure. It was that triangle that gave rise to email. It wasn't MIT. It wasn't billions of dollars in funding and was done by a smart kid in that institution, a smart brown kid, an immigrant kid, an Indian citizen at that time, I wasn't a US citizen then, who worked his butt off. I used to mow lawns to make money. I was a landscaper, I used to paint homes. I was always working, all right? So that's where email was created. Now it gets even more interesting. My high school was very racist. I was the number one kid in that high school. You would think someone would have told me about MIT. No one told, and everyone stayed quiet. No one advised me. 
two weeks before the MIT application was due, as some people know, MIT is the number one science and technology institute in the world, okay? It was even, in those days, it was even harder to get into MIT than it's now. Today, parents have counselors, they write their essays. I, I, anyway, I was only applying to two schools in New Jersey. Anyway, my mother used to always help people. She had helped these two Indian women in New Jersey, uh, both of uh, uh, who had just gotten divorced, which is unheard of in the Indian culture, and they didn't have a place to stay. My mom had met them in the local shopping mall. And she said, you could stay in one of our rooms downstairs. It was a very humble house. And one of them had a friend who uh, heard about me two weeks before the MIT application was due. He said, oh, you should go to this place called MIT. And I go, what is that? Never even heard about it. Mass and he said, it's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I, I, I thought it sounded like a mental institute. You know, they had the big columns and I didn't want to go. I had no interest in going. Anyway, a week before the application is due, he wouldn't leave and he told me to fill it out. So I took a pencil, I was rebellious and I filled it out. Anyway, I get accepted because I had perfect scores on my math scores. I won every award in my high school and you can go look at my record, okay? Um, Livingston High School. Um, uh, so I get accepted to MIT. So then I have to come visit MIT. When I come visit it, I look at MIT and all these nerds were there who looked unhealthy. They had glasses, you know, bent over. And I, these guys looked like they were 80 years old. And I said, there's no way I'm going here. I said, these people look sick, even though it's the number one institute. I was always into health also. Anyway, finally, my high school teacher, whose son actually was going there doing his PhD, she says, no, 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 you should go. Now, they, now my high school starts telling me about MIT after I get accepted. Why? Because guy three, they get credit. The stature of the high school goes up in ratings. You see, if I go to MIT, so they it wasn't they were helping me; they were helping themselves. So anyway, I decide to go to MIT for one reason because my one of my high school teachers says, "Forget MIT; you will like Boston. Boston is like the Athens of the world. It has arts and culture and all these things." So anyway, I came to MIT, and because I was also interested in politics and social change, I ended up getting elected as the student body leader of the freshman class at MIT. And by the way, when I first came to MIT in September 81, the new the MIT newspaper highlighted three of the 1,000 people who were coming into MIT. Remember, it's very hard to get into MIT, right? 1,000 students were coming, but out of those three, which means 0.3%, I was highlighted as this boy who invented email, okay? In the front page of the newspaper. And it's out, if you go to inventor of email, it's doc, again, further documentation. No controversy. I get elected student body uh, president, and in December of uh, 1981, I get invited to the president's home. It's a very uh, prestigious thing of MIT. And his name was Paul Gray. And Dr. Gray was advisor to the president of the United States. And he had heard about my invention. And he said, you know, it's too bad that the uh, Supreme Court and the legislators do not understand patents. They didn't, they, they said software patents were not allowed, okay? Because these stupid politicians didn't know what software was. They thought you're just writing something on a computer. Now, by law, the Copyright Act of 1976 allowed you to protect, like if you wrote a book or you wrote a novel or you wrote a movie script using 
the Copyright Act of 1976. That's how you protected your work. But in 1980, the year before I came to MIT, a new law was put in place called the Computer Software Act of 1980, which said you could use copyright law to protect software inventions, okay? Dr. Gray told me about that. So again, at that point, I think I was 17 years old, I wrote away to the US government's copyright office and I asked for those forms. And in those days, you had to, it wasn't just simply filling out the form, you have to give all your code. I had to give all my code and I filled it out on August 30th, 1982, now um, uh, a young Indian American boy gets the first copyright for email. It's right there. You see that? So this, again, to be clear, the only way you could protect software inventions in 19, at this time, was through Copyright Act. I did that. There's a copyright. Okay, right there. <laughs> Dr. Right. Shiva, like you invented the email, then how did it got stolen and the controversy? Yeah. I, so between 1978 to 1993, email was used literally in organizations. A lot of people don't know this. You don't need the internet for email. 93, you may remember the World Wide Web came, www. And it gave an interface to the internet, which was using the mouse, right? You could point and click. And that's when email went from being a office application to a consumer application. Programs like Hotmail came out, Yahoo Mail, Gmail, right? But they were basically what I had done, okay? But the important thing is, as email volume started growing in 1993, the White House was getting lots and lots of email. And I was in my PhD program at MIT doing research on artificial intelligence. I was asked to participate in a contest, contest run by the White House to automatically read the president's email and route it, you know, detect death threats, things like that. Long story short, that's a whole nother video we could do. I ended up winning that contest, okay? And I then left MIT in the middle of my PhD in 1993, and I started a company called Echo Mail, which was the first company in the world to automatically read, analyze email, route it, and I ended up getting three software patents because in 1994, you could start patenting software, okay? And I created this multi hundred million, $250 million company, okay? So I just wanna let you know that I did many other things after that, but I never spoke about the invention of email. In fact, there was a big article in the MIT newspaper saying, Dr. Email, you can go read it. Dr. Email was seen, everyone knew I created email. I never spoke, it was just known. Now, the interesting development start occurred in 2011, my mother, who I love and love dearly, was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. When we first came to the United States, my mom worked in a factory where all, there was this dust and it affected her lungs. So she, was, she had only three months to live. And the three months before she died, she gave me a suitcase, which is sitting over here. And in that suitcase was filled all the computer code, the tapes, everything, okay? From my inventing email in 1978. She gave it to me as a gift because she had beautifully organized it. All my awards, a copyright notice, et cetera. Now, the senior editor of Time Magazine, senior editor, Doug Ameth, technology editor, reviewed all of this content. 
the only journalist to actually be honest. And he wrote an article anyone can find on the internet on November 2011 called The Man Who Invented Email. Okay? Giving me full credit in Time Magazine. That same month, I got a call from the Smithsonian, which is a number one museum in the world. Okay? They house all the great artifacts. Like you can find the, the Wright Brothers stuff and everything. The National Museum of American History. And they, it was a great honor. They said, Dr. Shiva, we would like all of your material. We would like to have it in the Smithsonian. The Computer History Museum also contacted me. So I didn't know who to give it to. The Computer History Museum is in California. Smithsonian is in Washington, D.C. Eventually, I decided to give it to the Smithsonian. And on February 16th, 2012, you can go look this up. I was called and I was honored. They had a big signing ceremony. I gave all my materials to the Smithsonian. Okay. And a Washington, Washington Post, again, a big newspaper, wrote an article, Dr. Shiva Ayadure honored as the inventor of email. All right. Because now it is in the museum. Now it's making history. You follow? All right. That evening, a African-American Washington Post reporter did three videos with me talking about my invention, like we're doing today. She wanted to know my journey and they put it up. Now, that day should have been an occasion for celebration of the American dream, right? Someone who came from nothing, rising up. But instead, what happened was there was a white racist professor at the University of Wisconsin who had built himself up as though he was the historian on email. And he, at that point, had said that Raytheon and a guy who looked like a, a nerd had created email. And the email had come from the ARPANET, the military. In fact, the guy that he was giving credit to never said he invented email. He said, I wrote 15 minutes of code to simply add text to the bottom of a file. At best, what he created got, guy through would be a caveman version of Reddit or Facebook. It was not email. But the important thing was, if you went to Raytheon, which is a $37 billion military contractor, on their front page, they use the at symbol, which you use in Twitter, as their website logo. And Raytheon, a military missiles company, had rebranded themselves as, a, as the inventors of email. Now, I didn't know all this. Why? Because missile sales were going down and the future was cybersecurity. So Raytheon was rebranding themselves as a cybersecurity expert and had this guy who did not invent email, promoted him as in, to basically get government contracts, right? So imagine there's Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics and Raytheon, and you're the government, you say, oh, I want someone to do cybersecurity. Oh, we invented email, right? It was a 270, and they were making $250 million doing this. Now, when my stuff went in the Smithsonian, it was like a bomb went off. It was like a new skull was found in Africa or India saying that the origin of man came from a different way, right? Imagine all the historians who were promoting a certain view, a narrative. Now they're all out of business. So this guy, Thomas Haig, wrote an article calling me a fraud. And then another newspaper called Gawker Media wrote three defamatory articles. They called me an asshole, a dick. That's what they called me. And here at that time, I'd gotten four degrees from MIT, won the Fulbright, was teaching a class at MIT, the most popular course, while I was running my new company called Cytosolve, okay? Another invention I did to eliminate animal testing. 
So I'm so right when it went to the Smithsonian, instead of celebration, all this jealousy comes in. People attacking me. This one newspaper, Gawker Media, wrote three defamatory articles. In fact, there was a blog post that came out that said this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. Okay? Now, not one Indian, not all of these liberal Indians who are against racism, said anything. Indians were just quiet. If, if I was Jewish and someone had said this Jewish person should be beaten and hanged, every Jew, Jewish person would have been fighting. They would have fight civil rights complaints, but Indians didn't do anything. And that is a very, very important thing to remember. Now, one of my former colleagues and mentors at MIT was a guy called Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is the most cited scholar in the world. I worked with mm -hmm. Noam when I was in the 80s because I was always involved in political fights too. And I went to Noam and I said, Noam, look at this. And he looked all of it and he said, oh my God, you invented email. It's obvious that for any idiot, you don't even have to be a scholar. It's black and white like I just walked you through. So Noam was the first one to put out a press release. He said, it is black and white, a 14-year-old boy invented email. These people were so racist, guy three, they were saying, oh, uppercase email is different than lowercase email. So Chomsky's like, what are you talking Where about? Where do we have upper? So, sorry, I no, no, because we're because, not having uppercase email and lowercase email, do we? Exactly, because the copyright is all caps E M A I L, and the only reason it is that is because of Fortran language, everything had to be an upper. But the level of stupidity was ridiculous. And Chomsky said, okay, if uppercase email is different than lowercase email, that means you'd have to have two dictionaries. Remember, Chomsky is also the world's number one linguist in the world. He said you would have to have an uppercase dictionary, uppercase car means dog and lowercase, it's, it's just ludicrous. And I'm being attacked viciously all over. My entire reputation is being damaged. And I didn't want any of this. I was simply donating this to the Smithsonian. I never wanted the fame. I never made a penny off of this. And the level of racism and vitriol, particularly from Indians would laugh. Ah, ha, ha, Indian created email. What are you talking about? That was done. Indians were actually more racist than white people. And we'll come to that. So anyway, when I would tell people, and it took me a while, this is a very interesting personal journey, psychological journey. You have to understand for nearly, from 17 years old until that point, at that point I was in my 40s, I had always done political movement. You can see me at MIT, I ran the biggest anti-war uh, demonstration. I organized the food service workers to get a better wage. I made sure more poor blacks, poor uh, women and women could come down. I was a fighter. And when this was occurring to me, guy three, no one stood up for me. I had to then go into my own self and realize that no one was gonna fight for me, but I had to fight for that 14 year old boy and what his journey really meant. The journey of that 14 year old boy wasn't about me, but it was about people grow growing up before they came to MIT, you see? beyond the establishment. And I realized that all, innovation can occur anytime, any place by anybody. You don't have to go to MIT. You see, I have two perspectives, pre-MIT and post-MIT. And the reason they were so angry was several reasons. Number one, email this historian, and most of the historians were promoting this theory that innovation comes from the military, working with government, uh, or sorry, big military, big industry, and big government. You see what I'm saying? The military, industrial, I'm, I'm sorry, big academia, big universities, big military, and it's called the military industrial academic complex. 
And part of that narrative is that you have to go to war and kill people, and then you get great innovations. You follow me? This is what President Eisenhower warned people about. And my humble but powerful story is about the fact that email did not occur from the military industrial academic complex. It occurred by a kid trying to solve a civilian problem. I was interested in helping these women get liberated because what I was doing was liberating them from sitting at the typewriter to go over to the computer, you see? And this, I was solving a civilian problem, not a military problem. And this exposes many things. It exposes the fact that war is not the source of all great innovation. It isn't. You see, this is what they brainwashed Americans to think. So this is very deep. So on the one hand, I'm exposing the fact that innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. It occurred by a brown-skinned Indian kid. It occurred in a small medical college. It occurred before I came to MIT. And it occurred for pennies. You see? The first year when I was inventing email, I was paid nothing. I was given free food in the, in the, in the cafeteria. Second year when I created the next version, free food. The third year, I was given $1.25 an hour. If you add up how much it costs to invent emails, maybe less than $5,000. It wasn't billions or hundreds of millions of dollars. So when all of this controversy took place in fabricated controversy, fabricated, I mean, it's like, it's so obvious. The amount of shit I underwent was quite extraordinary. I would try to find lawyers to try to sue because my reputation is being damaged, my hard-earned reputation. The lawyers would say, ha, 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 what do you mean you invented email? Al Gore said he invented the internet. This kind of stupidity. Finally, in 2016, when I was living in California, I met a lawyer by the name of Charles Harder, who ended up becoming uh, President Trump's lawyer. And he had a small law firm, and he had just sued this same company, Gawker Media, because they had done defamatory things on another entertainer. So Charles looked at my stuff and he said, oh my God, you invented email. Now most lawyers, Charles charges about $1,300 per hour, $1,300 per hour. He took on my case for zero on principle, okay? And he said, I will take 30% if you win, okay? So it's called a contingency case. So anyway, we filed a lawsuit for $35 million against Gawker because they had said all these nasty things. The day I file, they declare bankruptcy. They said, oh, we're bankrupt. We don't have money to pay you. So then they go into- Wow, bankruptcy. what a way to deny you the rights, huh? Right, so Define then- for bankruptcy the day yes, you, they, you- Right. So they go into bankruptcy and then I am appointed the chairman of the bankruptcy committee. This is the karma, comes back in my favor. So now we're gonna sell Gawker to another company. So I get appointed the chairman and we sell Gawker the new company also looks at the facts. They didn't want me to sue them. So they remove the three articles and I'm awarded $750,000. Now, none of this ever got reported in the press. I won $750,000 and those three articles were removed. Okay? That's a huge victory. Now, if you look at the entire journey here, first of all, no one like me should have suffered like this. I followed all the rules. The only thing I didn't do, Gaia 3, is I didn't have a community behind me like the Jewish people do. And I didn't have the lack of humility. I didn't hire a PR agent or my parents didn't have money in 1978 to say, oh, my son invented email. See, my son invented email. Isn't he a great guy? Isn't he a great guy? Right? There was no promotion done, even though all the facts are there. 
So after I won this case, I realized that it is important that I take credit for this. Because it's hard to take credit when you, especially when someone's attacking you, right? So that is why I boldly say, yes, the inventor of email. And I do it not for me, not for my credit, but to give every non-white kid a symbol of a 14-year-old kid. Because if you talk to a white, a non-white kid, who's their symbols of inventors? Oh, Albert Einstein. Ooh, Thomas Alva Edison. Why is that picture of that dark-skinned, brown skin not on every stamp? Why? Because it'll unbrainwash, we're talking about Indians, these Indians who've been brainwashed to believe all great innovations come from white people. It is not the white person who suppresses the Indians. It is the Indians who suppress Indians. And, and the British learned this. If you study history, colonialism learned this. This is why when the British came to India, they created the IAS to appoint Indians to suppress other Indians because they learned that from Africa. Okay? Because it turns out the elite black Africans would abuse their own black people worse than the white people did. It's a fact. It's some psychological awful phenomenon. So what's happened in India, if you want to look at the depth of your question, because when I first came to the United States 1980, or uh, sorry, when I came to 1980, I worked with Chomsky and I really wanted to understand the, the caste system, the racism. And I found out a very good book called The Rise and Fall of the East India Company, written by a guy called Ramakrishna Mukherjee. And it basically shows the British were still stealing Indian shipbuilding blueprints from India until the 1800s. So much stuff was stolen from India, not only gold and wealth. But what the British were very clever in doing was they created a strata of Indians who would, who would also become Anglophiles. So, and Gandhi was part of the equation here. I mean, if you really look at the history of Gandhi without getting, he wasn't a great man in my view. He was a racist in South Africa. He didn't really help the poor Hindus and black people in South Africa. He was essentially a character who helped transfer power from white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. And the entire civil service of India was created by the British because it's easier to use brown people to suppress other brown people. So what occurred over the 300 years of British subjugation was Indians were brainwashed to think that white was better. White people did everything, okay? So they didn't even need to do any more racism because the Indians would do the racism on their own Indians. So when I say that I invented email, all these, frankly, not that smart Indian computer science, and they're all, what are you talking about? How can an Indian do it, right? Because it's jealousy. It is also this brainwashing. But the facts of the invention are black and white. So the term white supremacy is a very interesting term. It's a term that needs to be used because of People who created the term white supremacy were not brown, black or brown people, but it was created by, it's going to sound ironic, but the white liberals in the United States and the white liberals in places like Oxford. Because what they did was they created this term white supremacy to, in fact, attack white people. This is really interesting. Okay. Because you have a lot of working class whites, let's say, who support Donald Trump. Okay. So they called them white supremacists. When these people actually are not white supremacists, the real white supremacists are actually the liberal white elites. And I'll give you an example of this. Remember, the controversy of email was fabricated in 2012 when my stuff went in the Smithsonian. In 2014, a guy called um, Walter Isaacson, you can look him up, 
He's the one who wrote the biography of uh, Steve Jobs. Walter Isaacson, in the middle of this controversy, he was a former head of the Wall Street Journal, former head of the Aspen Institute. These are very elite white liberal organizations, not you know organizations of white supremacists, white liberal. In the middle of this controversy, Guy Theory writes a book. I don't have it here, but it's called Innovators of the Digital Revolution, a big, thick book. In the middle of this controversy, it's like someone called him up and said, Walter, write a book. And this book is about innovators of the digital revolution. Innovators of the, in the, now don't you think email is part of the digital revolution? And if you read this book, every page of the innovators who contribute are all white. Everyone's white. So here's a white liberal writing in the middle of my controversy. He doesn't even mention email. He doesn't even mention, like email doesn't exist. And he ends the book by saying that all great innovations come from the military, industrial, academic complex. And he calls one of the great innovators, a guy by the name of Vannevar Bush, who's the one who started Raytheon, who was a former president at MIT. And this book written by D David Noble right here, you can see on my shelf here, David Noble was a, an amazing uh, scholar. David Noble said that the day that MIT declined, and all academic institutions declined was when Raytheon was created by the president of MIT because it meant that university funding was being diverted to military institutions, okay? So at the end of the day, the invention of email is a very powerful story. It's about the fact that a 14-year-old Indian can invent email, but more importantly, the controversy, it was a manufactured controversy. And by the way, if you go look at my Wikipedia page in 2007, I'm, I'm, I'm a great guy, great guy. But when, after this fabricated controversy, my page is destroyed, I'm called a conspiracy theorist, this, you can go look at the whole history. In fact, a senior Wikipedia editor wrote to me and you can go see it, it's on whoinventedemail.com. And he said, I attempted to give you credit for the invention of email. I was called all sorts of names. He goes, your page has become more controversial than the abortion issue, than the second amendment. Think about what he was saying. Because, Gayatri, this goes at the heart from a global situation, what I call the neo-caste system. Because, see, what we've created is a new caste system which says, oh, only if you go to MIT, only if you go to Harvard, then you can be a great innovator. You see what I'm saying? And this is what, and, and the other thing was, let me tell you what they really hated. Let me tell you what the real racism here is. These <laughs> scholars these liberal racists like to put people into little boxes, okay? If you are Chinese, you must like Kung Fu, okay? <laughs> right, you must like Bruce Lee movies. If you're a blonde woman, you must be dumb. You may be attractive, but you're dumb. If you're an Indian, you must move your head like this and meditate and speak very slowly and like to be beaten because Gandhi told you it's good to get a beating. You see, they have created narratives of people. You follow me? Stereotypes. Now, Stereotypes. an Indian like me is not supposed to fight back. Indians are not supposed to be fighting back. Humbleness costed you. Humbleness has costed Indians a lot. Yes. So Indians have been brought up. This is why I don't like Gandhi. I believe Gandhi was brought in culturally to create this very stupid narrative to take a beating. What? What group says, take a beating and hit me? 
I mean, you have to go look at truly that this is the brainwashing the British have done, colonialism, but also the Indian elites have done to keep people suppressed. So I fight back. I'm not a good Indian, quote unquote. And that's what bothers them, that I fight back. I'm a street fighter who grew up in Bombay and a street fighter who grew up in New Jersey, and they know I'm smart. That's what bothers them. And that's what bothers a lot of Indians, because Indians are pseudo humble. And this is the issue is not a white issue. The issue is the arc of Indian history, the brainwashing that's taken place. And this is why I say I am the inventor of email, not for me. And every Indian should embrace this story for their own liberation. Because right now they're all slaves still. If they, mm -hmm. the litmus test is if you don't understand the facts so black and white presented to you and you're not proud as an Indian, you are a slave still. You are a, a, a slave at a very deep level. So there you go. Yeah. So which other Indian invention did not get its credit? Well, there's so many discoveries. I don't know where to begin, you know? I mean, just go, to name it, just, just well, naming well, it. I mean, we all go into the stories. Well, the, you, you go look at in mathematics. Aryabhatta is the one who discovered the elliptical orbit of planets, right? Very simple. Kepler gets the credit. You know, Ramanujam, who came from a village next to me, it took him a long time to get credit, okay? And by the way, to people listening, a 14-year-old boy is the one who invented TV. His name was Philo Farnsworth, P-H-I-L-O. And he has very similar background to me. He created TV in a small farm in Franklin, Idaho. He also had a loving family and mentor, but he did it in a small institution. RCA came and stole his invention. They started manufacturing it. Now, he didn't have to deal with the color issue but he had to deal with everything else. It took 60 years for him to get credit, okay? This innovation, guy three, is in everyone's DNA. You don't have to, see, the problem they have with me is, this is a real problem. This is why they hate me so much, these liberal elite racists, is because they go, shit, what are we gonna do with this guy? He got all these four degrees at MIT, he has a PhD, and I invented many other things after MIT. My recent in in invention, Cytosolve, is going after solving every diseases. Okay, we have a new technology that I modeled the um, molecular pathways on the computer. I published papers, I invented systems health, you know, echo mail, arts online. It's not like I needed email to define me. So the problem they have is if I didn't have all my degrees, they'd be like, oh, how dare he say invented email? Who the hell is he? I have four degrees from MIT. I'm a Fulbright scholar. I started multiple seven companies. I've made a lot of money. The issue is who are you? And I invented email before I came to MIT. You see, this doesn't compute for them. And so I'm, I'm dangerous to destroying their racist, elitist narratives. And that is why the invention of email story, no one, you know, they are very clever. Uh, they said, oh, oh, you claim you invented email. Bullshit. There's no claim. I invented email, period. There's no claim here. The issue is you claim to have created a controversy. That's what you claim. And the issue is, why are you creating a controversy? What do you benefit from creating? These are the questions people should ask. Because the facts of the invention of email are black and white, or if you want to say brown and white. Yeah. All right. I want to thank you so much, sir, for joining. Jani, the Pali Sabi viewers requested, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the alternate media if you want to contribute, if you want to support, you want to appreciate, you want to criticize. All the links are given in the description box. Thank you so much, Dr. Shiva, for your time. Really value it. Thank Take you. Take care. Be well. Namaste. Mm -hmm. Namaste.